tonight. Um, I want to talk with you about <clears throat> the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's very thorough teaching about how actually to meditate in order to become awakened. And particularly, I'm going to start, at least tonight, I'm going to talk about the first of these foundations of mindfulness, awareness of the body. I'm going to uh, describe some of the, the ways the Buddha described we can work in this way, his actual teachings, and then some of the ways which I have found so useful um, in helping us really get to know ourselves using this amazing practice. The so Buddha began by saying, regarding the, the whole of the foundations of mindfulness, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Disappearance of pain and grief. Sounds great. In his uh, descriptions of these teachings, the body the first of the four foundations, had the, much the most information. Many, many words, many, many teachings over and over and over describing at great length many aspects of working with the body. And the thing, one of the things, I don't know if you agree with this, but it's a thought that I have, that we can easily have, I think, is when we think of one, of one, two, three, four, five, six, and we hear it, especially those of us who've practiced for some time, and many of you have, we can think, I know about this, number one, so I'm going to move on now to four, five, and six, advanced level practice. And we can feel that it's um, okay to skip levels one and two kind of thing. But it's very important that we never do that because this is a foundation that... Um, like all of the practice, we're always needing to have a strong foundation. And that foundation can so easily get washed away. And so we always must keep attending to these foundations, all of them. The Buddha himself, the fully awakened one, practiced regularly the first foundation of mindfulness. He was a, practiced breathing. It was in breathing, aware of his breath was what he was applying his attention to during the night of his practicing as he became awakened. He didn't grow out of doing these foundations. So I don't know if this is a tendency you have, but I just would like to encourage you to always be a, the beginner and always think of coming back again and again to these first teachings. couple of uh, descriptions, the discourses again and again say a couple of things about this, mindfulness of the body. If we practice mindfulness of the body, it's one of the greatest sources of joy. It's also how to become one's best friend. You think of how our practice brings us this sense of friendliness and sense of lightness. So I want us to always remember this, how practicing this way brings these things to us. The Buddha actually said, for those who do not practice mindfulness of the body, they will be unable to experience the deathless. More than just it will bring joy and friendliness, it actually is absolutely essential. So, He said about this, here, monks, bhikkhus, in regard to the body, a monk abides, and we're like monks these days, contemplating the body diligent, clearly, knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful. It's also said that um, in practicing awareness of the body in the various ways I'm going to talk about, um, two aspects of our skills grow greatly, which are the probably the two foundation wings of mindfulness practice, concentration and insight. Both equally develop while practicing this. So 
These are some of the theory that the Buddha described about why this is such a, an essential kind of practice. <clears throat> a lot of it is very obvious, but a lot of it has a lot more depth than may at first appear anchored, grounded. He, one of the descriptions in his teachings about being in, aware of the body is somebody walking in the marketplace carrying a bowl filled with oil, I'm sure a lot of you know this story, on his head, not letting himself spill a drop. And some of the teachings even say that there was somebody behind him with a, with a sword raised and was going to stab him with a sword if he did spill a drop. So, like, really important that he didn't spill a drop, not just having oil on himself, but a great threat of life, while not being distracted by all the dances and the shows and everything that's going on in the marketplace by being able to keep our minds aware of our bodies, they're not available to get confused, to get distracted, and so on. So it fills our attention, if you like, with something, so that we're not going to be carried away by something else that we don't want. What I like to use the phrase that we can get carried away by that we might not like are flights of fancy. To avoid getting carried away in flights of fancy, we can restrain ourselves by filling our awareness with our body, consciousness of our body, unavailable for distraction, otherwise engaged, occupied. Another aspect he talked about was the the concentrating aspect, the taming, the gathering of the mind. Think of like herding sheep or something, gathering together instead of this dispersed, scattered. He described uh, one of the uh, similes he gave about this was um, by continuously, and this is where the continuity comes of being aware of the body, the mind which runs and jumps and is all over the place eventually gives up doing that because we keep on and on and on giving it something to do, that over and over. And so it calms down. The simile he gives is taking a wild animal and tying it to a post. And it fights and frets and runs and pulls and chases until it eventually realizes there's no point, there's no way it can go, and it, re- it surrenders itself. Our minds, if we continuously occupy them in this way, surrender themselves and relax, calming down. Another way he described it, Sally referred to this a little last night, um, that when um, we are overcome by hindrances, any kind of distraction, anything other than what we want to do, which ultimately always is for our well-being and wholesome, to help ourselves awaken, any of these hindrances or kilesas or whatever you want to call them, it's like they um, invade us. We're invaded. The Buddha often used this description of them as being thieves which steal into our house and take our wealth away, take our good sense away. If we are um, already full, it's the same way as I already said, anchored, if we're already full by being aware of the body, there's no room for these thieves to come in and sneak anything. We're not available. And he said, like a jug of water already full of water or like um, a log that's saturated with water, there's no space for fire to take hold of it. We need space and air inside the wood for the fire to burn. But if it's already full of water, it's not possible. No room for the fire. He also talked about the, um, what happens to the mind as it does keeps occupying itself by paying attention to the body. It becomes strong, not just gathered, but strong. Strong, and so it can't be influenced in ways it doesn't want to be. And the description here was describing um, the strength of a piece of wood that you throw a a ball of string or twine against, something that's not as strong as it. And the strengthening of the door, the wood, can't be imprinted or overwhelmed or pushed over by throwing anything at it. There's that lovely... Um, imagery of the Buddha's night of awakening, sitting here in this pose with his hand touching the earth, being mindful of his body and mindful of his breathing in his body, and his mind attempting to, trying to 
have him worry and have doubt and get bored and get restless and have pain and question what he should be doing and all the hindrances happening. And the images, many of you know, the personification of that mind being Mara and the images Mara's armies, all these negative forces trying to get a chink in there and find a way to distract him, coming at him as if they were arrows. And his clarity and steadiness and the strength of his mind, like that wood, what doesn't have any chinks and the arrows can't get in. And what happens is they get close to his mind and then they dissolve into flowers and fall around him. So in the morning of his awakening, he's surrounded by flowers, not arrows. And it's that fullness that comes from being occupied fully. No space to wander off and get disturbed. Taming the mind. Anchoring us. Another thing the Buddha described as being a value and a purpose for doing this is that by practicing this way, naturally, naturally, if we just keep paying attention to the body, the reality of the body, the mind becomes steady. It concentrates. It naturally happens. You don't have to do the concentrating. You have to continually be aware of the body and concentration happens as a result naturally. And he emphasizes that. He says, in the way that if you've got a full river overflowing a dam, naturally the water just pours forth. Or if a full container of water is tipped over, the water just falls out. It's just inevitable, effortless, natural. So when we're wanting to have a mind that's gathered, if we do this, pay attention to our bodies over and over and over, that's the result. I like one of the translations of the foundations of mindfulness. I like the word establishment because that comes that includes the word in there, stable. There's that steadying. And that's what foundation needs to be. It needs to be really steady, really stable. Foundation of a house, foundation, understandings of anything. So that's what happens. And when we... Uh, when we do this and we keep seeing our minds, we're endlessly beginning again. So we always go back to this foundation practice. Sometimes it may be very brief, and then we're actually being aware of some other aspect of our experience. But over and over, and sometimes not so briefly, we again reground, we reconnect, we feel again the body, we feel the posture, and so on. Already, as our instructions have been telling you in the mornings, So these are some of the reflections I have on why this practice is so valuable. In almost every experience we have, there is a physical component. Even some of the most sublimely subtle meditative states, there is an echo, some reverberation that is the body. Some of the quietest, most subtle, there's a feeling in the body of ease and subtlety. But in all of the increasingly less subtle states that we experience, the majority of the time, there are huge reverberations throughout the body. In other words, we can always find our body's aspect to our experience. It's always there. So it's completely accessible to all of us in almost every moment. When we have an experience, any experience, there's contact the contact with some aspect of our sense, our sense doors, our eyes, or our bodies, or our mouths, our ears, something, all over the body somewhere, or an idea, a memory, a feeling. Immediately, that comes to us physically, comes to us right on that physical level. What we do with it isn't necessarily so physical, we then create an enormous amount. We build it into an enormous drama with much mental behavior. But its initial impulse is right there physical. Another aspect about why it's so essential is, and this is, this is I, I love this part of it, is 
It's absolutely real, what happens in the body. What happens in our minds, we're making up. It's a lot colored by our impressions, our styles, our tendencies, and so on. What actually we're feeling in the body is actually what's happening in the body. So we may think that we're something, but if we look in the body, we'll find what really is going on there. It's really honest. It really helps us cut through our our distortions and our fancies and our stories a lot. It's so it's so direct. It's so clear. So helpful. So our practice, one of the ways we describe this practice is it's actually truth-telling practice. The Dharma, of course, means the truth of how things are. But what we're doing is we're like facing into what's actually going on over and over and over. And the body is so helpful because it's so directly revealing what really is going on. When we're really tired, we might be, you know, when we're worried, we're busy, we're preoccupied with all the things we have to do, we think. But if we can just get underneath all the busy thoughts to what's actually being felt, we'll go, oh, actually, I'm exhausted. It's so simple and so clear in that way. Extremely valuable friend. Joseph Goldstein has said this many a time. I've heard him say this. We hear a sound, and then we think, bird, and they're separate. The body knows the sound is a sound. It's the mind that adds the explanation, the story, and so on after that. If we tune into the basic level, the direct experience of it, the body can show it to us. We don't have to do a lot of analysis to figure it out and try and remember. It's much simpler than that. It's much less than that. Watch that resonation in the body. Ah. Hearing. Another thing about the body is that it's... um, This all seems so obvious, but very rich. The body is of nature. It is natural. Your body belongs to nature. Your body actually doesn't belong to you. You don't actually belong to anything. But here's your body, and it's nature's body. And it's doing nature's living. It isn't doing your bidding. It is quite a lot of the time, but it isn't as much as you'd like, probably. It hasn't from the very beginning. You didn't choose it. You got that one. It was an issue. You got somehow some odd combination of forces and you got spat out into that particular body, that particular build and coloring and attributes and completely not... That wasn't yours. You got given it somehow. And you'll get spat out of that body, and that body will be taken back by nature, turned back into natural dust sooner or later. That also will not be your bidding. And all the way through, it keeps doing things which nature compels it to do. Something's in its way, it trips over and falls down on the earth. You didn't want that to happen. That's just what they do when bodies, mobile things, moving on the surface of the earth with gravity pulling them down, encounter obstacles. A lot of what goes on in your body isn't actually yours. We take it as ours, we take it upon ourselves, we identify with it, we wish it were other, or we're proud of it doing that thing that way. But actually we've taken an awful lot that isn't ours and made it our business when it isn't. When we see it in that way, it's like we can give a lot of that back. So we cannot, for instance, have to regret or wish it were otherwise that I'm tired. It's what happens. Bodies get tired. They come on retreat, they're overstimulated, we take away the stimulation, everything's nice and quiet, close your eyes, it's nice and warm and peaceful, and the body gets sleepy. It's what nature does. Some of you may be thinking, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But that's not yours to control. That's what the body does. A lot of it we can allow when we let it be nature's body than our own body. Hmm. And of course, the big things like aging, sickness, dying, clearly not what our choice would be. There's a monk who said that 
conceit. One of the definitions of the word conceit in Pali means it's the misappropriation of public property. <laughs> and that's what we've done, you know, with, with a lot. But certainly public property is really all the elements that make up stardust and earth and air and water. And it's, we've misappropriated this, taken it all upon ourselves, and then we identify with it and we try and build it up and make it do these things and get frustrated when it doesn't do the way we want it to do. It's all a misappropriation, not all, but a large amount of it. Give back your body to nature. A lot of what it does, let it, let it be nature's responsibility rather than your own. Another thing about the body being nature's body, when we allow ourselves to see it in this way, it's, um, it's not just nature's, it's sort of universal. So it's body stuff. So when we have certain experiences in the body, it's like it's our stuff. We have these bodies, and these bodies are like that. A lot of our awareness of the body can bring us to realize that we're all connected. We're all so similar. We all struggle with these things. It's such a relief to not have to take it on and wish that we could handle it better and so on. It allows the shared responsibility of of having these amazing bodies. That's a relief to be able to realize this. These are universal factors. It's hard being human having bodies sometimes. It's wonderful also. It's many things. But we share these things, these many things. Some of them are peculiar to us, but an awful lot of them actually are not particularly peculiar to us. We've just made it into our own and identified so with it. Our race, our coloring, our hairstyle, etc. Our location, our nationality, our political affiliations, and on and on. It's just misappropriation of public property. When we identify as though we do misappropriate it, and it's me and mine, we're identified with ourselves, particularly with our, our physical selves and the image of that, the appearance of it, you know, looking good or whatever. We, it's, it's such, it's such um, a barrier to the truth and awakening that Ramana Maharshi said, um, trying to um, become awakened by being uh, identified with a body is like trying to cross a river on the back of a crocodile. It's absolutely not just misappropriation, it's an impossibility. So see what's your relationship with your body and how much do you believe it's yours and then you take on shame and pride and all the things that go with your identification with it. And then more, as we study the body more and we get more familiar with it, we discover there's actually a hell of a lot going on in the body. There's tons of stuff that we can discover through the body. And it gets more and more fascinating. And as it gets more fascinating and we're able to perceive more and more subtlety and more aspects of who we are, we get more interested. And as we get more interested, our attention is more naturally drawn there. And so our concentration builds and so the whole thing, that's how the, the natural concentration happens because it gets more fascinating. And one of the most essential attitudes which Guy talked about the uh, night before last is this one of curiosity. And uh, I, I come back to that really a lot. The more I practice, the more I, I think this aspect of a kind of delighted childlike wonder is absolutely, absolutely essential. Without that, we, just, we, we are not going to be able to keep exploring and therefore keep discovering and therefore become free. So the body really helps us become fascinated because it's so full and rich. So here are some words that we use that we already know in our general language that describes the physical component, for instance, of our different emotions. Hot and bothered. Calm and cool. The weight of dread. The burden of worry. 
somebody has a heavy heart or a light heart or a soft heart or a hard heart. Physical, physical, physical descriptions. We jump for joy. We sink into depression. We carry the weight of despair. We feel flat or bored. There's a flatness when we're bored. Very physical descriptions, aren't they? Words that we're completely familiar with. Because we have such a physical reverberation to almost all of our emotions. And for some it's easier to recognize them than the others. But nevertheless, they're there with sometimes more looking than other, other people. We can find these. The actual manifestation, the reverberation of these changing moods that come through us. It is said by, I don't know how they can measure this, but that when we communicate with each other, 6% of how we communicate is language. The rest is body language. The body's expressing, it's reacting, responding, it's doing all kinds of things. People who are skilled in reading body language can interpret way more than the average person. So much going on in how we are. There are ways the Buddha suggested we practice with the body. Um, In these different aspects of physical experience, he suggested, first of all, um, that we are aware of the body in the four postures, standing, walking, sitting, and lying down that we are aware of the body as it moves through these postures, as it is active, throughout its moving. Grosser or more subtle movements, less movements going on when sitting, more when running, obviously. But all of the time, being in this body and knowing how it's moving. So knowing when it's running, knowing when it's heavy, knowing when it's the various movements it's doing, when it's leaning, when it's stretching, when it's pushing, when it's pulling, when it's carrying, when it's touching, when it's being touched, when air is flowing over it. We walk along, we're actually, we're opening up air and moving through the air. There's a reverberation of the air on the skin. There is a lot going on, just moving around on the planet. Along with postures, the Buddha talked about our activities, which are very similar to the postures as the actual stance, you know, of standing or of walking. When we do standing meditation, we can feel. Try and stand still. Like next time you do little standing meditations, try and stand completely still. Completely impossible. Try it. It's absolutely impossible. There's many millions of little adjustments, kneecaps, little twinge on this thigh here, this back here. We never stand completely still. Way more activity going than we'd think. You take um, slow motion or speed up motion cameras of people in their bed sleeping. Most people, like, they move tons. Some people really move. Some people, I know somebody who wears out the sheets because they move so much. (laughs) Even when we think there isn't a lot going on in the body, there's a lot going on in the body. And then the actual activities, the the tasks that we do, that we mean to do, the the touching, the cleaning of the teeth, the moving of the soap, all the the day-to-day stuff, the holding of the pen. There is so much that we can notice. All the time we're doing something. So the Buddha said, through all these activities, know what you're doing. Now you have a month, some of you two, with lots of time on your hands and no hurry, And it's possible to notice, for instance, just how precisely are you picking up that spoonful of yogurt? Are you like jamming the spoon into the yogurt and spilling it? Are you missing the yogurt? Are you doing it with some grace? How are you moving your utensils? Any, any, take all the things, anything you do all day long. It's absolutely quite interesting. Some people jab at their food. I have a friend who talks all the time and while eating is constantly stirring all of her stuff all around the plate and she has no idea she's doing it. Like all the time, completely unaware. Notice what you do. 
even just with eating, but with anything. With how about your cleaning yourself, your bathroom activities? How do you do that? Do you rush through the shower? Do you linger? Do you turn around? Do you turn clockwise in the shower? <laughs> like, how do you... It's fascinating. Like, what's, what are you doing there? Do you have preference to have the shower, you know, on your head all the time or just on your back? Or what do you... Do? Just enjoy it. Explore it. Be there for it. Discover. They talked about um, ways of describing... Uh, being able to recognize the Buddha in the days of the Buddha, people who wanted to know, was this an enlightened being? And how, they, how can you tell if somebody's enlightened? One of the ways you can see how, you know, a certain degree of is mindfulness. And when somebody's mindful, their activities are appropriate. And so when they're not mindful, they're messing around with their food or they're dropping something or they're crashing into something because they were oblivious. How, how graceful are you? as you go about the retreat. And as we have the time to get more present, people become, you find yourself becoming more graceful. I remember I was practicing in one retreat here one day, and I was, uh, it was summertime, and, uh, and I was doing walking practice out here in the, in the, on the terrace. And uh, Jack Cornfield was teaching the retreat. And in the evening, he'd come out and stood and watched during a walking meditation, a bunch of people walking. It was a long retreat, so people got quite quiet. And I remember him mentioning in the evening, I like this, he said, watching people walking back and forth this afternoon, it's like I was watching um, stately Spanish galleons. That's a lovely poem. It's just like moving so gracefully. When we're not so present, we're trying to be graceful, and often in the beginning part of a retreat, we'll slow down more than we're actually really able to be mindful for. We're wobbling because we're not really in sync quite yet. But there comes time as we get more present that we move with more and more grace and ease. And it was said that the Buddha moved, did everything beautifully. Like he didn't ever rush or spill or over anything or overstep or miss while reaching because of that complete awareness of his body all the time. And then when you place something, do you drop it? Do you shove it? Do you fuss with it? How is your manipulating the things around you. How is your energy with that? It's a, it's a lovely exploration. And it really reveals, the point of it isn't, you know, so that you have your, all your shoes in a line. It's just to reveal how is your attitude? How present are you? Are you caring? Are you interested? Are you connected? Or are you somewhere else? And your physical activities will show you. Buddha talked about these, these, at least the words are translated, dignified, deliberate. That's paying attention. And, uh, and I was saying to somebody today, we had this little a word discussion, to pay attention, we use that word, pay attention, in our language. We also use the word give attention. And I think giving attention is a nicer way of thinking about it than paying. When you pay, it's sort of expected. There's a charge and you pay, right, in our normal. When we give something, it's much more caring. So giving our attention to what we do, we'll find, will be more present. And there's more pleasure, of course. The more attention that we give, we give attention to something and we discover affection. <coughs> they go together. One teacher has suggested to experiment with this, to make this playful and interesting and, and revealing, which is the point of it. Um, as you're doing walking practice, I'm just throwing this out as a little suggestion. You feel like being, if you're getting a bit grim and you want to be a little lighter about it, which I recommend, um, is that you, as you do some walking, don't do this all the time, but maybe once in a while, um, see, mimic, like pretend to be an actor and walk as if you were angry and then walk as if you were happy, and then walk as if you were bored, and then walk as if you were sad, and walk as if you were under six, and so on, and over 80. And just see how, A, we hold, we do things so differently. There's so many different ways of being in our body, and also how, how we are affects our state. How our inner state affects how we move, but how we move also affects our inner state. And it's just an interesting exploration. We can really get to see the manifestation of ourselves through the movements of the body. So we're learning, we're drawing closer to ourselves. We're discovering ourselves. This is the whole 
reason we're doing this, to see what really is here. What is this person? What, is, what am I believing and making myself to be? And what isn't really what I thought I was? By discovering ourselves this way. As we do this being conscious, even the most mundane, simple little things that we do all day long can be an arena in which we can discover the truth. Nothing is not appropriate for mindful awareness, nothing. And because most of what we're doing is physical, any, any movement at all can be a moment of waking up to reality, a moment of discovering some truth about who we are, how we are. They did a little, some scientists did this little study where they had um, some people read a cartoon that was funny while either group A and group B, group A had to hold a pen in their mouth between their teeth, which meant they had to be smiling somewhat. And the others had to uh, hold a pen in their mouth with, with their lips so they couldn't smile. And they had to look at the same cartoon. And the ones who had the pen in their teeth found the cartoon much funnier because their face was already in the smiling position. Isn't that interesting? So our, our bodies are actually not just our bodies. They are mirrors to our, our minds and our hearts and our inner states. And we can find ourselves there and discover who we are pretty directly if we look, get familiar with this body language. And one of the um, magical ways of uh, things about being on retreat is that we can do this kind of thing. You have all the time in the world to explore in this way and become really familiar. Mostly we're so busy with the tasks that we can't go underneath the tasks to feel the reverberation of how we're feeling or what we're doing. We're too oriented with getting the results done. And here we have all this time to actually be able to come right back from that and feel what is the expression of myself? How is it manifesting in this movement, in this movement? Is there curiosity? Is there caring? Is there judgment? You know, is there expectation to have it be a certain way? Very interesting. Another way the Buddha recommended we um, practice with awareness of the body, I've talked about postures and activities, was mindfulness of the breath. This is an enormous, enormous topic with the second lengthiest discourse applying to this, the breath. So I'm not actually going to talk much about the breath tonight because I have plenty of other things I want to say about the body, but I will just say that um, the breath is extraordinarily fascinating. It is included in body awareness, obviously, but it itself can reveal unbelievably subtle aspects of our experience. This is the way the Buddha suggested in the Satipatthana Sutta that we um, learn to get familiar with the breath. For instance, whether the breath is long or short, then, what, then the whole of the breath, the whole from the beginning through the middle to the end of each breath as a whole breath, then using, the, this is in a, in a graduation, 16 steps, then a calming with the breath, using the breath as a calming device, calming the, me, the mind. Then experiencing with the breath, experiencing the mind itself with the breath. Then gladdening, not just experiencing, but gladdening the mind with the breath. And then concentrating the mind with the breath. And then freeing the mind with the breath and then contemplating change and impermanence through seeing the breath and then contemplating fading away of experiences with the breathing and then concentrate contemplating on cessation of experience and contemplating letting go from the obvious just the breath coming in and out long or short strong or weak right through to these really subtle states of freedom, all via being aware of the breath, all within 
awareness of the body. Other areas that he suggested we are aware of the body to reflect on the 32 anatomical parts of the body, the different solid and fluids and skins and hair and sinews and muscles and phlegm and all the rest of it that's in the body. He suggested we actually really get to know the body anatomically, just plain physically. Contemplate, be aware of, see if you can sense, see if you can sense the slipperiness in your eyeballs as you move your eyes around. There wasn't a lot of juice inside there, they would get stuck to the right or wherever you tend to look. <laughs> Why don't our, you know, our, our cheeks stick to our teeth? It's because there's this juicy in there. There's a whole lot of fluid in there. The shoulders, as we do move around in yoga, synovial fluid, it's called, in the joints. So they don't creak and crack, and it's not like wood moving on wood or just plain dry bone on bone. There's, there's all this liquid in the joints. Extraordinary. That's just one of the 32 anatomical parts of the body. It's very interesting. He said um, we can uh, explore these by contemplating, so using our imagination. Um, like, it's like separating out what we think of as a solid thing, me, or even my body as one thing. It's actually all these many different parts working together. It gets fascinating. It becomes universal rather than personal. It becomes incredibly complicated, and we realize how sophisticated and how elegant and how graceful when we think of how many, 32 bones in one foot. Extraordinary. He also uh, suggested that we contemplate in that way to uh, remove our, not just our identification, but our also lust, our attachment, our wanting, you know, our, our needing to be with people, our thinking, not really seeing clearly who somebody is, but seeing them as through rose-colored glasses as being this beautiful deva or whatever it may be, this hunk of a person. If we actually see them in terms of 32 body parts, they're just not quite so mesmerizing or not going to carry us away into the delusion of flights of fancy that we can have around that. He also suggested that we analyze the body in terms of the elements, in terms of the water and the, and the earth and the air and so on and so forth, as I was mentioning it. When we do any of these, bring our awareness into the body, it's really helpful. And it's, this does it for us, because when we look in terms of ourselves, our bodies in, uh, this is nature's body rather than my body, then... I see the universal quality of it, but it's really helpful to remember. If I can say, well, I'm noticing my body sitting here, I'm coming in to a sitting, sitting down, feeling myself present. If, especially how your mind works, if you use, uh, um, if you find yourself with mental noting going on, use impersonal language, pressure, pressure, tingling, tingling, tension, tension, comfort warmth, hot, whatever it may be. Use impersonal language. It keeps the reality real rather than turning it into a story about me and complicating it. Just impersonal, hot, hot, cool, cool. And then another area he suggested we practice we can't do this very much in our lives here, contemplating bodies in their various stages of decay. We really hide from this aspect of our reality. We dress it up, hide it away. We aren't exposed to this. We sort of know we should because there's a bit of a hunger. As soon as there may be some weirdness going on, a car crash, we, you know, the traffic slows right down, so maybe we can have a look. There's something about the deep truth of what the body's really like, that we mostly don't want to see and don't want to know about. The Buddha suggested facing honestly what's really the body's like. It's 32 anatomical parts and that it's going to die. He recommended monks do this practice. 
Even if we, I mean, we're not going to be able to just go looking for bodies. We won't find them, not in this country. But at least we can take the invitation of the Buddha to be real about that we're dying, we're going to die, we're all sentenced, and allow ourselves to let that in. This huge lesson of our mortality and the unreliability and vulnerability of being human. When we do, the thing about this, being able to face our mortality, really know it could be my turn any time. It may be my friend is the one who got the diagnosis. It could be me. Then we, it brings this, this beauty to this, this life. It's like this so fragile life. These are the last few lines of a Mary Oliver poem. A lot of you know this poem. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's okay to contemplate this truth of mortality. It makes it poignant and makes it vulnerable, makes it beautiful. Why do we love flowers? It's because they're not made of plastic and they don't last, that they're so beautiful, they're so delicate. And we are all like this. It's a lovely contemplation in that it brings out the vulnerability and the sacredness of what there is. Not to depress us or freak us out, but tenderize us. So how we actually do this, contemplating the body, noticing if you're turning clockwise in the shower and those things, noticing if you're stabbing the broccoli inappropriately roughly, See, for instance, in your body, when you know there's an emotion happening, feel it in the body. If you're sad, feel what that feels like in the body. Recently I've been saying to people, if, if we were having a conversation, if I were an ET, an extraterrestrial, who didn't have a body and who didn't know what it was like having this conversation with you, I would say to you, and the person would said, I'm really, really feeling sad in meditation exploration, then I could say, how do you know you're sad? How do you know when you're sad? How do you feel sad? It's physical. It's because of this happened and that happened and all the story and all the players. Those are all the extras to the drama. They're all extras. You're an extra too to the drama. Go underneath all the extra stuff to actually, how do you know? You know you're sad. You feel it in your body. How do you know you're irritated? Not why you're irritated and what has caused it, but how do you know it now? How do you feel it? Ajahn Sumedho, a lot of you know, one of his favorite phrases in practicing is like, sadness feels like this. Ask the question, how do I feel it? And then get to know it. Sink your attention in your body and feel the reverberation of that feeling. Where is it? What is it? Explore it. Give your attention to it and stay there and explore it. And as you explore it, who knows what will be revealed to you. But all kinds of things will be revealed to your awareness because you're giving it to the truth of this emotion in the present moment, in its basic components. That's where we discover whatever we're going to discover. When they're difficult emotions, of course, we don't want to do that. We want to avoid them and fix them and explain them and blame on them and strategize how to avoid them next time and all of this to protect ourselves from having to feel them. This is truth-telling practice. Let's just feel them. When we do, you know this, when you do, just on the basic level of feeling it, It's just a wave of clenching, or it's just a wave of tingling and tearing up. And then there's a sighing. They're just different movements in the body washing through. They're totally manageable. Even what we think of as some of the most scary things, fear. I don't want to go to fear because 
I'm afraid of fear. fear. Fear brings fear of it. And I'm afraid that what will happen if I, if I go there? When we actually go there, there's clutching, there's heartbeat speeding up, there may be sweating, tension. And we keep looking, stay there, and that's all that's there. Clenching and sweating and the heartbeat beating more. When there's grief, we don't want to go there either. When we go there, we can just feel these heavy waves of softening. They're almost, I would almost use sometimes, I mean some of the states that I couldn't use this word for, but many times when we don't think it would feel this way, there's a kind of sweetness because of the honesty of being able to, oh yeah, I've just been, I've been so anxious so much. When we let it in, when we allow it, we soften We give our attention, we find affection, we find some friendliness there. They're just waves of sensation, really. And they come and they go, and they're not solid. And they're much less than we think. We think them into bigness. We experience their their reality, which is a lot less. I often have told this story when I was... um, in uh, my midwifery training, I spent a couple of months in Jamaica. And uh, because at the time, um, midwifery wasn't legal in Canada, and so we had to go abroad to do our requisite number of births um, being supervised. And so there were various countries happy to take students from a country where it was illegal, from an illegal school. And Jamaica was one, and I went to Jamaica. And so there I was in this, most of the time, two-thirds of the time in this very busy hospital in Kingston, Jamaica, 50 babies a day being born there, three nurses on duty maybe. And so no time or attention given to the women during the course of the labor, just only time to be there to deliver the babies. Literally, if the baby's head was coming out, you went into the room and delivered the baby. So the women were alone a lot of the time. They hung out with each other for company. They didn't have enough facilities to let anybody there except the patients, so they were without any family members. And the average age in this hospital in 19, whenever it was, 81 or something, was uh, 17, average. So there were many 14 and 15-year-old girls there, alone, and without any idea what was happening, as if it was their first time, and with no one to support them, and no nursing staff to even encourage them or anything, and they were scared to death. And some of them were so scared, they, were, they thought they weren't going to make it. They were that scared. They didn't know. They were, in actual fact, doing fine. But what was a normal physical experience that's painful and challenging, for them, was a terrible experience. And that was all their mind. If their mind, if they had different circumstances, they wouldn't have had that mental extra. And it would have been a simply challenging, painful several hours of experience, which is all it really is. We complicate our lives through our minds. I want to mention briefly how we work with pain because this is such a physical aspect in meditation and many of you know this. So it will come sooner or later. Some of you live with pain, some of you it's chronic, some people just once in a while. Some of you have no pain and you sit down and all of a sudden you're racked with it and you find all these the revealing of old patterns of holding that you didn't even know you were doing, largely, of course, because you can't get away from it. And you're trying to be still, and you discover that if you didn't have to be so still, you'd move and you'd relieve that tension, and here it now shows up. There are a few very useful, skillful ways of approaching this. One of them is to... um, It becomes front and center, your pain, when it's sufficient... So now, this is what's calling your attention. So your attention is thou there. Um, I recommend initially that you don't go fully into it. I recommend that you go to the neighborhood of the pain and explore around the edge of it and see if you can find the boundary. And by doing that, go to the edge of it and then go away from where the pain is. Say it's your knee. Go up a few inches into your thigh to where there isn't pain. And then go back and gently approach where the edge of the pain might be. And go around all of it that way, gently 
finding the boundaries, and sometimes they keep shifting when you do that. Sometimes they're very distinct, but often they're not that distinct. You're being interested in it, you're exploring it, and yet you're doing it gently. And so it's not so difficult to do. So do that, and then come away. And then it will pull you again, and then you go again and do that. And you can do that for quite some time. That's one aspect of it. Another is it will pull your attention. So don't struggle. Let your attention go there. And as Sally mentioned this morning, bring your attention inside there, but see if you can do, as I was describing, just the basic elements of whatever it is. What are the real sensations here? Pain is a word. And pain is more than a word. It's also a whole belief that this is negative and oh my God. And then very soon the mind starts turning like those Jamaican young women it into I'm never going to walk again. Meditation is, why don't they warn us? You know, this actually creates cripples. Da, da, da. Who knows what your mind does with it? Don't go there with that. Go to what actually, if I were an ET in the room, say, how do you know? Like, what is it, what, what is it like to have whatever you've got in your knee? What actually are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling this kind of heat that goes in waves that just is about a six-inch diameter and it's, it sort of flashes and tingles and it actually comes... Be interested in... If you had to describe it to an ET person, how would you describe it? Or to a physician, what are your symptoms? Not the explanation, not the justification, not what you think you're going to project into the future, what it may mean, just basic and then withdraw your attention from it. It's compelling. Pain is so compelling. But you can actually say, enough now. And then you can leave it and bring your attention to somewhere else in the body that is not painful. And then see how you are when you're not struggling with the pain. And it is actually much easier. And notice in your body how your body is when it's not struggling with pain. And you may well discover that actually it relaxes and that the shoulders go down and that the breath softens. And then when you go back close to it again, you find the breath gets a little bit tighter and a little bit faster, and your hair stands up a little bit higher on your head. You may notice a lot of these other aspects, all physical things, as you explore and play with this sensation of pain. And you can notice when there's struggle. You can notice when there's aversion. You can feel aversion in your body. You can feel the tension, as I just described. You can feel any of the hindrances in your body. You can feel when you're wanting something, when you're pitching towards something, when you're angling to get something, when you're planning into the future, there's a tilt off balance. You can feel that physically. When you're averse to something or resisting, either you're, you're intending to go out with some kind of weapon to fix it, there's some push in you, or there's a turning away from, or a pulling away from. You can feel that shrinking physically, energetically, in the body. It'll show you. When you uh, work with pain, I always just want to remind you that there comes time, sometimes, when we are no longer to be able to be interested in it, but it just becomes a struggle because it's too much. When that happens... I love this word, and I always use this word. Our energy becomes withered by the pain. When we're withered, we're no longer able, we don't have enough energy to be interested. We're just now caught in the struggle. Then it's time to move. Maybe even just a moment before then. But don't move right away and do that exploration first. You're able to be with it, be interested in it, give your attention kindly to it. Once you no longer can do that, then... It's no longer helpful. It's no point. Move your attention elsewhere. Open your eyes, perhaps. Go to hearing and or adjust. Mm. I have more to say and no more time. I'll very briefly say, no, I won't. So, one of the fabulous, I think, aspects that happen when we do this and we give our attention to the body and we look closely inside like that, as I've described, we begin to see that 
our bodies are not what we thought they were at all. That they are shifting, subtle, flows, sparks, tinglings, vibrations. A leg isn't what we think leg is. It's warm, heavy. It's a a lot of things that doesn't fit with the concept at all. So the being able to explore in this way the body takes our um, story of life and rearranges it to align with what really is the truth. And what really is the truth is way different than our concepts, way different than our normal take on the world. So the body, just the body, starts to reveal the deep truths of change, of of identification, of impersonality. We see anicca. We see that there isn't such thing as body. It's actually a word. There is momentary flickerings, pleasantness, unpleasantness, triggering thinking, triggering identity, triggering planning. The whole thing becomes untangled, unpacked through simply giving our attention this way to the body. And then we discover that our thinking is in question. Our values become questioned. Our opinions become questioned. Our whole established way of who we are and what we think it all is and who we think we are all starts being challenged and questioned. Just through something as simple as giving your attention to the bodies, putting your attention through here and you discover, this isn't what at all I thought this was. It gets, it gets mysterious, it gets peculiar. Hmm. We get to let go a lot of our assumptions and beliefs and the limits that we've put on life and ourselves. Then to finish, I must mention how not just looking at the body and seeing all these things and working with them in all these ways, which we do as we practice. But also, we, through that practice, can see, and how am I relating to this? And how am I relating to this pain? How am I relating to the way I stab my broccoli? How am I relating to the way I am or am not present in the shower? Am I then turning that into something to be proud about or something to love or something to wish it were different? How am I relating to this body and what I'm discovering? Our meditation practice is this. How am I relating to my world? So we can be completely interested in the body, but through that we can also, as Sally was describing this morning, discover our relationship to it, to life, to ourselves, Are you relating with the simple R-A-I-N, recognizing, allowing, being interested, not taking it personally? Are you doing this with your body? That's the R-A-I-N acronym. The night before, Guy talked about another acronym of recognize, observe, allow. Another version of an acronym. Are you recognizing, observing, allowing your body to be this way, your emotions to reverberate this way? I have my own favorite acronym. It's OWL. Open, wonder, love. Are you open to what's happening here? Are you curious? Is there wonder? Are you being kind? Or are you adding a whole lot of extra? and therefore suffering. The dukkha is the adding. So I think I'll end there and encourage you, uh, as one of my teachers encouraged me on a long retreat, she says, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. So I encourage that during a retreat.
to sit quietly for a few moments. So we have uh, 25 minutes for a walking practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.